pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that we can come before you again today, uh, together, via streaming, uh, to hear you speak. Thank you that your word is life. Speak that life into us, we pray. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, where do you look to have your needs met? Uh, we have needs, of course, so it makes sense to stop and think about how they'll be met. Uh, and whether we stop and think about it for ourselves or not, every single one of us has an answer for where we look. But is it a good answer or not? Let me explain with some examples. We live in a very materialistic society where what you see is treated as all there is. And as Christians, we're not immune from falling into that thinking either. And when you look around, you see food and tech and toys in abundance and comfortable places to live. And not so long ago, we could even travel overseas. And we see what others have and we want it. And when we have it, we want more. So it's hard not to trust in the work and property and dollars that can get us those things. Money is power. Power to choose. Power to rise above the threats and insecurities we face just doing life. Power to live comfortably. And so it's hard not to pour our energy and our thoughts and our every waking hour into it as well. But if we stop and think about it, haven't we then given this power, power over us? Uh, instead of it serving us, we end up serving it. <laughs> That's the deception, isn't it? When we think we are wielding money and material things, but when you stand back, you see they are wielding us. Let me put it this way. You worship who you trust. So you need to ask yourself, in fact, when you're honest with yourself, is the power you worship trustworthy? Here's another uh, all too common example, and I have to say I didn't find it too hard to make these, uh, to come up with these, because they're as much a temptation for me as they are for you. It's the power of influence. Now, these days, of course, we've all heard of internet influencers, uh, but it's not that they didn't exist before the internet, it's just that they just managed to make a job out of it. Uh, but don't we all risk trusting in who we can influence? Whether it's the people we live with, or our friends with, or work with, even these days, with people we may have never met. And so through influence, we can elevate ourselves compared with others uh, by the way we present ourselves, by our looks, by our thoughts, by our accomplishments, or by the way we cut others down, by the way we speak to or about or gossip about others to make ourselves look bigger. And why do people trust influence? Well, it's because it gives us power. Power to shape people and events, people in a direction we desire, events in the way we would like, and to get for ourselves what we want. Perhaps deepest of all, 
to shape how people view us uh, favourably and not unfavourably. But again, you've got to ask, who is wielding who? And, and how many people are living under the cruel master uh, of influence in how they view their looks, themselves, or at the heart of their very identity, their value as a person? Now, across the breadth and depth of God's word, we see that we are made to worship. Another way of saying it is, we are made to serve. Uh, serve the one who can meet our needs. Now, people may not serve God as they were made to, but they inevitably end up serving something else. So you have to keep asking yourself, where do you look to have your needs met? Hey, and even from our examples, we see it's not just that we serve and don't receive anything in return. It is, to some extent, a two-way street. We serve a greater power than ourselves, whether a what or a who. But at the same time, they provide our needs, or at least claim to. And that's where we have to be so careful. Because the amount of stuff around us or the power of influence, and I'm sure you can think of other examples like them, you can think of your own area of struggle or weakness, what they claim to offer is only a poor reflection of the one we were made to serve. But if we run after them, they prevent us from serving him. Alternatives to God offer us freedom but instead, they only enslave us. We need, we need one to rule over us who will meet our greatest and deepest needs, who has the power to provide our needs and will give us security in this life. We need one who will wield power to serve us rather than enslave us. We need, as we're being beginning to see in 2 Samuel, we need God's king. A king after God's own heart who loves what he loves and relates to him as we were made to relate to him. So we might have true life as well through him. Of course, by God's kindness and faithfulness, we know him. And I pray that you trust him as I do, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one to whom 2 Samuel is pointing us. And in 2 Samuel, in these episodes surrounding King David, even as they unfolded a thousand years before King Jesus, as we read them, we better see him and understand him and so love him. We're up to chapter 2 of 2 Samuel and do have it in front of you. Then you can cast your eye over it as we go and you can check that what I'm saying is what God is saying to us today. And as far as the narrative goes, we're going to divide it into two parts today, verses 1 to 7 and then verses 8 to 3 verse 1. And in verses 1 to 7, we see one of the first acts of God's new king. 
And what we see is God's king shows steadfast love and kindness. There's quite a lot going on in these uh, first sentences. Did you notice how David didn't see himself as his own authority? Though he, he could have, couldn't he? Uh, anointed king by God, now with Saul out of the picture. But he doesn't. He looks to God, the Lord God, for what he should do and how he should rule. As we read in those words from verse 1. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah? He asked. The Lord said, Go up. David asked, Where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. We're not told specifically how the Lord answered. It may have been through the prophet or through a voice or a vision. It may have been through the Urim and Thummim, and two objects given by God and used by the high priest to know God's will. Uh, but it's God's intention, regardless of which way God communicated, even for his Messiah, because remember the king is anointed to by God to show he chose him and the anointed one is called the Messiah, it's God's intention, even for his Messiah, to look to him for guidance and to obey his word. In that sense, too, we are like him, like God's Messiah. But unlike him, we don't have a unique role in God's unfolding plans. And we have this other privilege that we have the whole counsel of God now revealed to us, written in our Bibles, so that we can pursue the good works of God, the good works of obedience that he's prepared in advance for us to do. In David's case, he's told to go up to Hebron. It will be his capital. Uh, Jerusalem's not on the scene yet. We'll have to wait for chapter 5 for that. And when he gets there to Hebron, the people of one tribe, and only as yet one of the twelve tribes, Judah, we read in verse 4, they confirm him as their king. Next, we're told of this extraordinary episode in verses 4 to 7. It's extraordinary because in the politics of power, you wouldn't expect this to happen. Remember what I said last week, the way alternative claims to the throne uh, were dealt with in David's day was to kill the alternative, to have them out of the way, and kill anyone who was a close relation who might claim the throne in his, by inheritance, and at the very least punish any people who'd actively supported the alternate king. In this case, that's where Jabesh Gilead fits in. They've spared Saul dishonour at the humiliating end the Philistines had left him to of being left unburied. And then the men of Jabesh Gilead did, it, did this because they collected his body and buried him properly because Saul had saved them from their enemies years before in 1 Samuel 11. But now that they'd done it, they could be seen as a threat to the new king and his rule. But that's not how David responds. As we read from verse 5, David sent messages to them to say to them, 
The Lord bless you for showing his kindness to Saul, your master, by burying him. May the Lord now show you kindness and faithfulness. And I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. Now then be strong and brave, for Saul your master is dead, and the people of Judah have anointed me king over them. David gives the opposite response of what you'd expect. He isn't a king like the nations around and about God's people, even though Saul had tried to kill him. David honours those who honour God's king, even when it was Saul. There in verse 6 then, what's his prayer to God for the people of Jabesh Gilead? What does he do as he sits in the seat of power? Well, he turns his attention to the one who has power over all things. And he prays that the Lord would show them his kindness and faithfulness. And in that way, this is an incredible prayer. Because those very words thread their way through the whole Bible to describe the gracious character of God. Kindness here in this uh, translation, maybe it doesn't, it doesn't even seem strong enough way to put it. Uh, some of the other translations uh, call it God's steadfast love. And it refers to the way he wonderfully rescued Israel through the Exodus and the way he's known for keeping his promises to save his people time and time again and as solid as a rock. And what's more, as if that prayer, asking God to do that, wasn't enough, David says, and I too will show you the same favour because you have done this. It's his desire, actually more than that, it's his expectation that he would be the instrument of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. Now isn't that an incredible foreshadowing of our experience at the hands of our Messiah? when Jesus turns his power toward us in mercy, where he humbled himself to die on the cross to bring us salvation from our sin and win us forgiveness. As surely as David met these people who, to anyone else, would be considered his enemies and offers them the right hand of peace, so does the Messiah offer us, reading from the New Testament, from Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? As we look back at the cross today, so too we live now in the confidence that what God promises 
he certainly does. Now, what we've just read uh, just now is a good reminder to help us from falling into a trap that we can fall into, reading a book like 2 Samuel or other books in the Old Testament. The trap is treating it, in this case, as a book about David. Uh, without recognising it's first and foremost about God and what he's doing. Sure, David has a central role, but it's a role given by God. So here's my suggestion to avoid losing sight of God's place in it. While you're reading uh, chapters 1 to 10 of 2 Samuel, wherever you see David written, why not swap it with the phrase, God's king? Swap it in, see if that helps you keep on track remembering who's the main character and what's going on here. Well, God's king, David might be, but despite the rest of chapter 2 uh, uh, revealing the opposition he faces, uh, despite that, I should say, the rest of chapter 2 reveals the opposition he faces and what will come uh, of that opposition. Do you see what's going on here? It's civil war. Battle lines are drawn between the house of Saul and the house of David. From verse 8, Abner, Saul's commander and right-hand man, he takes Ishbosheth, the remaining son of Saul, and sets him up as king over all Israel but Judah. It even reads in verse 9 that Abner's taking matters into his own hands, that he's playing the politics of power, that he's looking to ensure his own place of influence and security as one trusting in how he can influence what's going on rather than what God has going on. And that too is against Saul, his master's recognition in Abner's hearing in 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 26 that rather than the hereditary line where a son of Saul would be king, Saul saw that David would be after him the king. And so we have King Ishbosheth, based in Mahanaim, with his commander Abner, ruler of 11 tribes. Uh, on the other side, up against King David, based in Hebron, with his commander Joab, ruler of one tribe. And what a number of you uh, have said to me, you've noticed reading through the books of Samuel, is that there is a lot of killing. And it's true. Uh, there are brutal episodes in these pages, pages consistent with the brutality of the age in which they lived. And I think we're meant to notice that. Uh, and it is meant to shock us. As we're meant to see the seriousness of what's going on. What's more with the 12 representatives from each side uh, killing each other at the beginning and the outset of this battle. We're meant to see its senselessness. That brother is fighting against brother, God's people against God's people, trusting in the power of politics and influence with its cruel results, rather than the plans and purposes of God, which break out in the good rule of his chosen one, just as the people of Jabesh Gilead have already been promised. Through David. It's a reminder too 
that God's Messiah faces opposition and that we shouldn't be surprised by such opposition. David knew it all too well from dealing with Saul and even here after Saul's death his ascent to the throne takes ages. Patience and long-suffering for God's Messiah isn't measured in days but years. And it foreshadows for us the opposition Jesus faced in the way he it prepares us that even though Jesus came as God's king, as God himself, we shouldn't be surprised by such opposition. It comes from the everyday people who were offended by him, from the religious leaders who debated him, from the ruling authorities who decided to and ultimately killed him, because we know, don't we, how to get rid of the competing king's claims over us, which is to get rid of the king once and for all. Even down to today, people still reject Jesus in these last days, the days of God's patience. But opposing him, it's like trying to push against a tsunami. It's futile and ultimately disastrous. I say disastrous because he will both prevail and provide. Chapter 3, verse 1 really sums up the direction that this is heading. We haven't arrived at the end of it all yet. But 3, verse 1 says, There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. It's also writ large in what came before Ishbosheth's reign. We're told how long he reigned, just uh, in chapter 2, verse 10, just two years. Uh, and on that first battle day, the lines that were drawn, uh, at the end of the day, verse 30, Job returned from the pursuit of Abner, and when he had gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Ashel, but the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. Remember again, it's not that David was better than Saul or free from sin that led him to prevail, but because of the unique role God gave him in his plans and purposes. David was a king after God's own heart, who himself trusted the Lord God to bring him into his kingdom and who didn't rely on himself to secure his throne. He relied on the one who rules over all, who wields his power in steadfast love and faithfulness. And in this way, David foreshadows Jesus, who himself faced opposition, who, when tempted by the devil to an easier path than the way of the cross, waited on the Lord and his plans, or who, when crying in the garden of Gethsemane, asked that his suffering might be taken away, prayed, but not my will, but yours be done. 
God's king will prevail over all his enemies, as we read Paul announcing in Acts verse 17. For God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him, that is Jesus, from the dead. Jesus will prevail. You can count on it. And just as he will prevail, so he is the ruler who provides for us as well. You see, even as we read Acts chapter 17, we ought to remember God's last word is not judgment, but mercy. Uh, and even more than that, as David did for the people of Jabesh Gilead, so the Lord Jesus provides God's steadfast love and faithfulness to us. <laughs> Meeting all our needs, uh, our daily necessities of security, of forgiveness. For where David was a great Messiah, Jesus is the greatest. One last thing about how he provides. We often talk, uh, as we have just now, about Jesus' work of the cross and his forgiveness in the past and the judgment to come. And you might be mistaken for thinking Jesus' great work is only in the past or in the future when he returns. But what we need to remember is what began in the past continues now and is for us. We experience it each day of our lives as he provides for our daily needs. And as we walk in the repentance and forgiveness that we need each day. Remember, while Jesus' greatest work of the cross is in the past, his great work continues today of providing every good thing we need and meeting us in the places of our greatest need and adding to his kingdom other people like us who need him. And it reminds me of the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer we heard read from Matthew 6. Jesus taught his disciples to pray. We'll be praying it together uh, in just a short while after we sing. It's a prayer we pray regularly as the model prayer Jesus taught his disciples. Uh, the whole passage uh, does, in fact, as everything we ask in it, sums up how Jesus rules over us. We can look at it in great detail now, but I just want to focus in on one part for now, where Jesus has us praying, your kingdom come. And why? It's because this is the kingdom we need. The kingdom each and every person alive needs a kingdom which is the power above all powers the government to which no criticism will stick and one which never fails to provide for all our needs or will ever enslave us jesus 
the king of this kingdom. Jesus, our Messiah, he is the one we can rely on to meet our needs. Trust in him. Trust in him.